Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Man Can. Man Can. What is a Man Can? Well... Oh, you might start drooling here. A man can is a personal-sized keg-style growler. Rawr. <laughs> it fits in your fridge, travels anywhere, and will keep your beer brewery fresh for the life of the beer. No shit, I kid you not. Like a keg, it's stainless steel and can be pressurized with one of their tap systems. Like a growler, you take it with you to share great craft beer. Or if you're me, you drink it all to yourself. But remember, it's not a keg. It's not a growler. It's a man can. You guys, you get to take your beer and it doesn't go flat. You get the good shit. You don't have to deal with bottle shock or 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 cans, the funky taste that cans sometimes give us. Oh, yummy beer. I need one right now. Thanks to man can. Check out the link on the website. Let's go to the show. I rode today. No, I really did. My bike. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the only podcast that is hosted by a guy who is happy to no longer have sensations in his crotch. The Pack Filler Podcast. I'll explain that. No, really. <laughs> hey, everybody. I'm Pat Bulger. How are you? Really? Where's Swiper? You guys, I just got back from my second weekend ride. I know. Cue the apocalypse. It's And if, if it does happen, I am very sorry. Actually, fuck it. I'm not sorry. I got two rides in this week. 
Two. Two rides in this weekend. In fact, oh, you guys, it's. <laughs> I, I'm taking it. I, listen to me. I'm stumbling. I'm in my cycling kit right now. It's my first interrupted week of training since the incident. It is a big deal for me. I never knew, or at least I had forgotten how much better I feel when I'm able to actually get outside. I mean, no offense to my friends who are uh, true Sufferlandrians. I mean, no offense to the Zwifters out there, except those ones from Ohio. <sighs> I think I might have seasonal affective disorder. I might just be a whiner. Not sure. But to get out, even though alone, I did go alone both days. I tend to do a lot of my training alone. I think I'm a loner. You think? I think I'm a loner. Um, but it's been truly great. I got a few hours on the road yesterday. Sorry, I'm actually trying to get my shoe covers off right now. Because my feet are sweating. They're the neoprene ones, and they're really good. They don't, they don't come off as easily as they go on. You ever notice that? It's the only bad part about... Oh, Jesus. Yeah. It sounds like I'm taking a crap. They're the only... Oh. The only bad part... Nah, that's one shoe. The only bad part about winter cycling... And for the, uh, my friends in Australia right now, screw you. Did you hear that? Did you hear the Velcro? So, you, so it's official. You actually know that I'm, I'm not just full of shit. Well, not more than normal. <sighs> What was I saying? Oh, the only hard part about cycling in the winter, see, I'm winded, is that you got to take like 20 minutes to prepare yourselves just to go outside. It was in the 40s here today, so I'm looking one, two. I got three jerseys on and one of those wind vests. Two of the jerseys are long sleeves. I'm a big believer in long sleeve jerseys. I got a little muddy today because I was in the mud. But and shorts and knee warmers. So I, I, I did okay today. The rule is, you know, if you didn't know the rule, you always want to be just a little bit cold when you leave because you know you're gonna bo- your body's going to warm up. And I had to, I had to use work gloves for my, <laughs> my long finger gloves because I couldn't find my gloves. I think my kid took them to a soccer tournament this weekend. But I hate having to, you know, dig out, find out all the clothes. I'm not that organized. And... Uh, and get it all ready. So that's kind of the pain in the ass. But boy, once you get out there, oh, God, it feels good. Oh, God, it felt good. And everything's feeling fine, you know, as as far as health issues go. Back's a little tight. Back was a little tight. I, I have a hardtail mountain bike. And, and so I was bouncing around on the rocks a little bit. So it was, you know, back's a little bit. But it's not bad. If I wake up tomorrow and I can't move, we'll know what the problem is. So it feels good. God, dirt today, road yesterday, sunshine, 40s, Fahrenheit here. So we're getting there. I feel refreshed. Anyway, enough about me. Today's show is about the future of bike racing. No, it's not about doping. It's actually about officiating and the cost of putting on races here domestically for us. And, and I'd like to hear from my listeners over the pond about, um, yeah, that, that accent sucked, about what's happening with, with racing in your areas. Um, I have to admit my, my racing days might be slowly coming to an end. Um, I'm still passionate about it, but I'm just, and you've heard me rant on about the same races, the same people, 
the same courses. Um, I'm trying to find more different challenges out there. And I think that might be a midlife cyclist crisis where it's like, I don't want to do any more crits. I want to ride 200 miles across the desert. And, um, but I still care about bike racing and I still care about the, the areas, the area races and things like that. Heaven forbid I'm an announcer. So it kind of is important to me. And uh, there are a lot of things that we as cyclists take for granted. The race happens, you know, we show up, we have fun, we go home. Um, Somewhere along the way, we might thank a promoter, a volunteer, or heaven forbid, the officials. You know the officials. Khaki pants, light blue shirts, patch, usually a, a hat of some kind. It's not the most attractive outfit, I'm not going to lie. But officials, uh, these these guys and, and gals out there are a special breed. Kind of like the poorly paid cops of the sporting world. There are good examples out there, of course, and there unfortunately are bad examples. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure we've all had our run-ins with uh, cycling-based officials. And here in the States, it's USAC. Or UCI or even even things like that. And we've had our examples of good and bad. And there are good examples and bad examples of cyclists, too. Um, I just, I've heard a lot of people who tend to go with that official's mentality and lump them all in. Like they, they just, they're on some sort of a power trip. And I don't believe it. And I think today's guest is one of those good examples. He's been around with the sport for a long time. I think he's okay having to sometimes be the bad guy and um, the bearer of bad news. And I'm anxious to hear what your thoughts are um, on my interview with uh, Phil Miller. He's the cycling commissar for USA Cycling and for the uh, UCI. So I'd like to hear your opinions on it once you get through the interview and go from there. Uh, Before the interview, however, I'd like to also thank my second sponsor, VeloJerseys.com, for their involvement with the show. If you haven't been there yet, get over there. Tell them I sent you. Be sure to check out the new yet retro kits they have for sale there, including their new wool jerseys. I kid you not, wool jerseys. And don't freak out and turn off your iPod because you're afraid of wool jerseys. I just got a new one in the mail the other day. It's a Multani jersey. It's freaking cool. And it fits me. Um, it's, it's really comfortable. And for those of you scared of wool, do not be scared of wool. They have beautiful non-wool kits also. So if you haven't ridden in a wool jersey, you should try it. It's actually really cool. It's a comfortable material. It's not that itchy pilling fabric you heard all those lies about. You should check it out. Try out VeloJerseys.com today and get the retro kit you remember and dreamt of. Remember when you were young and you were riding and you dreamt of racing in the, in the big races and the, yeah. That's why I think I need a Renault one, because that was my dream team. I wanted to be on Renault. I wanted to ride for Cyril Gimon. Oh, man. VeloJerseys.com. Speaking of which, have you heard about the dream team article David Miller recently posted? I think it's in CyclingNews.com. Uh, I think it's over there. It's getting all kind of uproars because David Miller actually put some dopers on the roster. <gasps> no! Yeah. Um, so it, it got me thinking before I go to the interview, I'm, I, I was thinking about this. I'm not into fantasy football or I don't join the 
what Phil and Paul have to advertise on the during the tour about picking your own dream tour team and putting that all together. But it got me thinking, if I had to pick, and the rule was, uh, yeah, even though it's not a rule, the, the game is, let's play this, the game is pick nine riders throughout history, current, living, dead, whatever, and try to build the most perfect cycling team probably a tour team or something like that you know from your race leaders your lieutenants your domestiques i even put classic specialists and sprinters on there i had a breakaway specialist and i have of course my climbers and if you have not been involved in the sport for some time i might say some names that might confuse you if you've been with the sport for a long time i might say some names improperly and if i have either look it up or don't bother texting me or tweeting me or telling me you pronounced it wrong. Like I probably pronounced Multaney wrong when I was talking about VeloJerseys.com. I'm sorry. God, what a sponsorship deal you think that's got to be, Multaney. If I'm saying it wrong, fine. They sponsored Eddie Merrick's back, uh, back way back when. What, the 50s, 60s, 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 70s? Fuck, I don't know. I don't know my decades. That kit is still full. I'm, I have that jersey now. I don't even know what the company is, but I'm still riding around in their logo on my chest. Talk about a return for your investment. I've never driven a Ronell car either. I hear they're shit. I hear they're not very good. If you drive a Renault, tell me. What was the, what was the one Eddie, Mer- Eddie, Eddie Merckx? Eddie B. That was a Lacar. That wasn't built by Le- Renault, was it? Lacar? That was just Lacar, wasn't it? The car. <laughs> what a rolling hunk of shit. <laughs> Eddie B. If you don't know who Eddie B is, uh, sorry, I'm dating myself. So, cycling dream team. You ready? Okay. I thought long and hard about this. In other words, I sat up in bed and I typed it out before I went to bed. Because it just popped into my head. I have my cycling. It came to me quickly. And some of them you might know from the old days. Okay. Starting off top of the ladder, my stage race leader, and I'm going to get some shit for this, but I'm going to say I have to pick the one and only Bernardino, ruler of the Peloton. He he could scare grown men into not attacking. He was a f- true definition of the concept of the fast asshole. And you have to sometimes be a fast asshole, and you need one on your team. Bernardino, my stage race leader, five tours. I can't remember how many Giros won the Perry run Perry Roubaix. Uh, did he win a tour of Spain? So, see, you guys are probably screaming at me for not doing my homework. I would have also, and I know you were also yelling at me for not picking Lamond, but I can't put Lamond on the team with Eno. We all, if you don't know how that turned out, go do your homework because it didn't turn out well. And Greg Lamond. Incredible rider, three tour, three-time tour winner, world championships twice. I mean, yada 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 yada. We know how great Greg is. I would have put Greg on this team, but I couldn't because I picked Bernardino. So sorry, Greg. I love you, buddy. Please don't sue me. My first lieutenant, north of the border, Steve Bauer. Steve Bauer was a badass cyclist. He was he was a fighter. He could climb far beyond his expectations he would fight in everything steve bauer yeah steve bauer my first lieutenant super domestiques i'm still my first one's still one of the old schools teo de roy 
Teo DeRoy. I will never forget Teo DeRoy in the Perry Roubaix coverage from CBS Sports talking about how he pissed his pants. You pissed your pants, you crap your pants. It's a whole pile of shit. I guess quite literally. And then John Tesh looks at him and says, Will you ever come back? And he says, Of course, it's the most beautiful race in the world. <laughs> Total badass. Teo DeRoy. Super domestique. Uh, and I picked two de- super domestiques, so that's one, two, three, fourth. My fourth rider, Garrett Thomas. I just think I'm, I'm so impressed with what that guy's doing with Sky. And the glasses speak for themselves. My classic specialists or sprinters. First one, my old school, Sean Kelly. No, I'm not picking Cipollini. I'm picking Sean Kelly. Sean Kelly was a man for all seasons, and he was always there. Had the funkiest position. He sat. It looked like his saddle was about an inch too low and his top tube about two centimeters too short. But man, he could make his bike go fast and he was a fighter. My other sprinter, no team is complete without Peter Sagan. Sagan, Peter Sagan. This guy is going to save bicycle racing. If you haven't seen some of the videos out there with him, including the one where he does a shot for shot uh, remake of the final scene from Greece. Yeah. Look it up. My classic specialists are sprinters, Sean Kelly, Peter Sagan. My breakaway or tough stage specialist. I'm not picking Yenzi. I'm sorry. I'm going USA on this one. My first American on this team because I couldn't pick LeMond. And if you don't know of him, you didn't enjoy what I consider the most beautiful time in American cycling, the 80s. He's a quiet man, but he's a hard man. Thurlow Rogers. Thurlow had everything to be one of the great European bros. He just it, it's just the cards didn't fall in the right place. I think Thurlow it, w- was a brilliant cyclist, not necessarily one of the best climbers in the business, but boy oh boy, if the race was brutal and if it was difficult, he would have been there. Found ways to win a lot of great races. Really good guy too. So I only got two left. My climbers. And this is where I'm stacking the deck with my climbers, okay? Because they could always jump in and win a a Grand Tour piece of cake, obviously, when you hear the second name. My first name is uh, my second American on the team, Andy Hampston. Andy won one of the most brutal Giro d'Italia's in history in my books, and he deserves to be one of the climbers on this team. Interviewed him a long time ago, really classy guy. And my last rider to round out my cycling dream team, before I say the team director, it's Froomey. It's Chris Froome. I, I know I'm just putting him down as a climber here, but boy, oh boy, what a nice climber to have in your in your team lineup, eh? Already won, eh? Look at me, Steve Bauer, eh? <laughs> won two tours. Probably going to win a couple more in my book. So there you go. There's my cycling dream team. My team director, of course, the great Cyril Guimard. I just think he could get stuff out of riders, and, and he was a great... Just a great all-around guy. More on the feel and the art of the sport rather than the science of the sport. Honorable mentions. I got to throw some honorable mentions because I can, and it's my podcast. I, 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 you know, I'm going to say it, and you're going to hate me for it. I would have put Lance Armstrong on the team probably somewhere. I think he would have won even clean, but he's off the list probably because of the dope. I, Lamond, I mentioned earlier, I simply couldn't pick him because I picked Bernardi. No. Greg Lamond is... An, a, if, if it wasn't for Greg LeMond, I wouldn't be a bike rider. Amazing guy. 
Merck's copy and Ketil, all those guys, they were great, but I'd have a tough time comparing them. You know, how can we compare Merck's to a, a modern day cyclist or even a more recent day cyclist? Um, they're just untouchable. Um, other riders, uh, Johan Museo, Phil Anderson, Davis Finney, so many other my heroes. I, I would have picked them, but I you know, could only pick nine riders. I, I want to pick more. I had to follow the rules. So there's my dream team. Bring it, people. Bring it. Tell me your cycling dream team. I dare you. Oh, yeah. Interview. Phil Miller on the Pack Filler Podcast. Right, in case you guys didn't know, I, I, I kind of like bike racing. I regularly hear about um, the state of cycling and what's going on within the sport and many, to be honest, educated and uneducated views about what's going on with the sport and who is indeed in control. So I did some thinking and I, I went back into my my years in the sport, and I realized I, I could potentially gain access to one of the experts in the sport, who's somebody who's been involved with it, and on the officiating side and on the, I guess we could say, the governmental side of the sport. And so I reached out and gained access to such a voice, and, and that voice is on today. He's been involved in cycling for a good amount of time. I'm not going to date him and age him by anything saying that, but he's an international commissar <laughs> for road, track, and cycle cross, as well as a mentor and representative for cycling, uh, officiating, as well as his government body. Uh, please welcome to the show, Phil Miller. Phil, how are you, man? Doing well, thanks. Good. Hey, um, you know, just to kind of give our listeners a little bit of exposition, a little bit of background here, um, can you tell us what your your history is with the sport and as well as your officiating cred, credentials, so to speak? Sure. I got into cycling in Southern California in the late 1960s, uh, 69, 70. Started racing in 1970 um, and competed literally at the lowest level as a <laughs> what we used to call intermediates. It's not even a division that yeah. exists anymore. Um, but through juniors and seniors, up until I was in grad school. And then I transitioned into officiating almost immediately. I'd been officiating um, high school ball sports, uh, fast pitch softball and baseball. And when my competitive days were up on the bike, uh, it was such a real natural transition to make. So I started officiating in 1982, I uh, started working my way up the ladder to uh, national commissaire in 1987 and then international in 90 or 97. And then during that time, I uh, served on USA Cycling's Technical Commission. And in relation with my work, uh, at the time I was working with the King County Department of Transportation as the manager of their bicycle pedestrian transportation program, I got involved with the development of the state's uh, bicycle racing guidelines, permitting guidelines. And this was after a, a horrible um, fatality out in Spokane involving yeah. a young, young man by the name of Cooper Jones. And uh, so over the years, I've been involved with trying to negotiate that path between the government agencies who permit our presence on public roads and the needs of the sport and the technical development of that sport. So it's, it's, it's been quite a ride. 
Absolutely. You know, to refer to, to Cooper Jones, I was at that very race that evening and, and raced it. And I remember yeah. passing by that that unfortunate mm-hmm. uh, incident. And, and obviously it had a huge change wow. on, on the sport and what's going on, um, not only regionally, but I can imagine um, across the United States. Um, so what what type of i mean i guess i could ask for a, a, a not necessarily a job description but what type of elements yeah. and duties you you're responsible for within that realm of 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 the position you hold in usa cycling well as a as an official as a commissaire uh, we are legitimately kind of the blue collar lunchbox yeah. guys <laughs> who show up and make sure put it uci says that we are experts in the service of cycling, which is their way of saying we're uh, volunteers. <laughs> and then um, in the other sense, uh, like any official, our presence is there to ensure that each individual athlete can give their best performance without having to worry about what the other fellow is doing. Yeah. And so, you know, we are that presence that says everything is going to be done a certain way that certain elements of our regulations are adhered to, and that everyone can just concentrate on racing their bikes. And if, if we do that, then we're pretty invisible and we go away at the end of the day and people have had a good time. But we're also the people who are supposed to be there when things go sideways, as they sometimes do at a bike race. And we have the duty, if you will, and the authority to intervene in issues race organizers, local authorities, riders, mechanics, whomever, to make sure that the whole adventure keeps moving along in the, in the proper way. And so it's a terribly dynamic thing. Uh, there are times I think it's just a thing but paperwork, but there are other times where things can get interesting. And I had to stop the U.S. Pro Cycling Challenge a couple of years ago to yeah. neutralize a race. Um, not, not a fun thing to do, but at the time, that was the decision that came down. And so you, you do find yourself in interesting, <laughs> interesting situations from time to time. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, um, I, I, I don't know if I, I'm still am, I think I let my license lapse, but, um, being an official in, in honest, my opinion is, is many times a thankful, thankless job. It's, it's, hours there the bike racer the average bike racer doesn't see the fact that you're there before the event begins you're there well after um you're you're traveling and many times at uh, let's be honest uh reduced rate if anything you're barely covering your expenses and and what what keeps you coming back why do you do it and what what does the pissed off bike racer under need to understand about what the official's job is well first of all i think most bike racers are great to us um Almost universally. I mean, I'm, I get far more thank yous than the other. Good. Um, and and that's, that, that's a great thing. Because this is a community. Uh, certainly when I got involved in the sport in Southern California, they made like 350 people with licenses. So we all knew each other. You know, we all raced, and then we went out and had lunch afterwards. Yeah. And that, that kind of community has always been very, very special to me. Um, the sport has certainly grown. It's diversified. Uh, there are many more... Uh, commercial interests in cycling than there used to be back in the day. But it's still, I, I get more of a kick going out to the Marymore Velodrome on a Friday night, oftentimes, than I do going to the Tour of California. Really? Simply because the people are family. And it's something that's, you know, 
very familiar, very comforting, and I know I'm around good folk. And so local racing in particular is just this, it's, it's great to serve that. At the national or international level, you realize that your service is supporting something that's a lot bigger. And we are just a wee tiny part of that. I, I was part of the crew working world championships in Richmond this past year. And you know, everyone has their role to play, and it's a pretty tiny role. And then all of a sudden, you see that some of the stuff you've been doing, for example, I was checking bikes for motors, <laughs> all of a sudden shows up in the news. And, um, and, and so you can see you've, you've had this little piece in moving the sport forward, even though it may be in an area where it causes us a, a little bit of angst. Um, you know you've had a part of trying to resolve those issues. And so uh, different events have different kinds of payback, certainly. It, it certainly is not yeah. about the money. Good grief. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, it, it is the most enormous, wonderful write-off on my taxes each year. <laughs> and, and eventually the IRS is going to catch up to me. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit that part out, I promise. No, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so yeah, you, you talk not about... Not for them to chase. Yeah, yeah. You talk about the changes that cycling's gone through. Growth, decline, growth again. Um, and, and what, yeah. in your opinion, have been the biggest challenges to the sport uh, over your, your career? Well, I think... Part of it is that, in terms of change, is that the stakes are so much higher. Yeah. Um, you know, when I when I was in high school, you know, I was racing at a national level, and you know, like 1977, and it really wasn't a question, no matter how good I might have been on the bike, that if the choice was college or professional racing, well, I'm going to college because <laughs> there really was. I mean, yes, I've been racing against this kid named Lamond back then, but uh, there, there, there was there was nothing there for us. Now people make a living at it. There are companies that have developed huge profits to put on races. There are companies that are organizing teams. A lot of people make money. There are paid coaches now, and how? Um, there, there's so much involved, and the stakes are so much higher that people's expectations certainly have changed. And um, with that comes certain accountabilities that come with being visible. Like our insurance costs, for example, uh, have gone through the roof. Our ability to find courses on which to race have become very constrained. Um, the reaction of the public to our presence on the roads has changed because there are more of us out there. Uh, so there, there's a lot that has grown with the sport that has made things more complicated. The bike industry itself uh, is having a greater impact. You know, to me, bicycle racing was always something that was a competition among athletes, not amongst machines. This isn't car racing where they have a manufacturer's trophy and a driver's trophy. No, it's, it's about athletes. But in recent years, as bicycle companies have become much more technically savvy, it's gotten much more competitive, and everyone's trying to come up with the latest grade of widget, then you, you start to see pressure being placed on the sport to adopt certain things, uh, disc brakes being a recent example, or uh, innovations in frame design and aerodynamics. And all of a sudden, we're at cross-purposes with that athletic competition. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's the sport all about anymore? Is it about the athlete, or is it about the technology? And it's a 
contest that goes on to this day. Wow, absolutely. And and you mentioned in in your last statement about the the concern and the discussion involving road racing and insurance requirements. It's obviously a big issue that's coming up right now, and it's. I, I guess we could say it, it has been something that's been on the horizon. Um, the Cooper Jones in, incident probably spurred that at the beginning of that. Um, and mm-hmm. can you summarize that issue along with the challenges it represents? Well, sure. Um, the national governing body of the sport, USA Cycling, or one of the national governing bodies of the sport, there are several sanctioning organizations yeah. around the country now, uh, have as part of their responsibilities and packages of services have to provide insurance coverage. Any or any city or state or whatnot that issues a permit to use public roads is going to require that there be a general liability. That is to say that something that covers the city in case a rider or a fan or what have you is hurt and then turns around and sues the city. And that, that's, that's something that's been a part of the sport forever. That cost keeps going up, to be sure. Now, in, in this state, um, when the uh, state bike racing guidelines were put together after the Cooper Jones fatality, the state said, yeah, we're going to ask for general liability, and we are also going to put in a placeholder for automobile insurance. And they've never asked us to provide that until this year. Now, they ask for that from anyone who uses a state highway or closes a state highway, most notably TV and film production crews who are filming commercials or movies or what have you, have to get the same insurance that we do with the race. General liability, automotive liability. The problem for us is we're not being hired by T-Mobile or McDonald's or Ford. You know, in, in many cases, the people who are taking out these permits are people who are running a business out of their wallet, out of their yeah. Visa card. And these costs just simply get out of control very, very quickly. And so everyone's looking for a better, more cost-effective way to indemnify the sport, a sport which we all know has its risks, obviously. Um, And and, and unfortunately, for the national governing body, the insurance product they sell becomes a big part of what keeps that organization afloat financially. And so now we're at cross-purposes. Um, everyone wants insurance on the cheap, but if USA Cycling provides that, then their ability to meet the other expectations of what the organization does is compromised. And so, you know, insurance become a very, became a very important profit center for the association. And all of a sudden, you know, its members and the organization are at cross purposes trying to find something that uh, is affordable. It's difficult. Um, and I know USA Cycling right now is kind of rethinking the whole philosophy of how they approach insurance, but it's not something that's going to change overnight. Um, and that's one of the reasons some of these other organizations, uh, something came up last year, North American Cycle Sport, which is offering uh, a much less expensive insurance package. Uh, our friends in Oregon have for years set up they're racing completely independent of USA Cycling with a much less expensive insurance program that was designed strictly to cover their local racing because they weren't trying to fund 
national teams, national championships, or these other products. It was just their thing. And so the cost is a lot lower. Um, so, you know, to the perspective of someone who's putting on a race, grief, I mean, you know, there are choices out there. For the individual who's choosing to race, then they've got difficult decisions to make. You know, if they want to go to a national championships, you have to meet certain qualifying standards, you have to be a certain category of racer, which means you have to go to races with upgrade points on your license, yeah. and you only get those through USA Cycling. So there, there are a lot of issues that have to shake out. Or you redefine the sport into grassroots versus national competitive. And that's kind of a discussion that's going on right now, and, and a very interesting one. Absolutely. And I mean, first of all, there are a couple things you've touched upon here. First of all, this this insurance issue, is this just a Washington-based issue, or is this something that is representing our country across? Uh, this is going to be something we see across the country. Yeah. Absolutely. I think Washington is maybe their first in terms of dealing with it as a state because we've had the bike racing guidelines. Okay. Oregon also has a state document, Colorado, Georgia, of all places. Uh, have this, but I think we're the first that's just said outright. In other places, for example, in California, individual jurisdictions would apply these standards. So the the, the folks who've been putting on the tour of California for years, oh my yeah. goodness, every town they go through has a dis- different insurance standard. So in a way, we're lucky here that we've got one standard that's going to be applied, uh, at least when we're touching on a uh, state highway. But this is this is and, and that is the scope of it. This yeah. is potentially a, a a big one. I've heard grumblings across the <laughs> internet about uh, this more or less potentially killing road racing to an extreme measure. Uh, the fact that the the costs are going to go up. Uh, that's going to affect entry fees. That's going to affect uh, field sizes. It's going to be combining of, of of fields and all that sort of things. And mm-hmm. and and making sure. it much much more difficult for. I mean, for example, if if we have a weekly series, we do here in Spokane a two. Tuesday night series, um, the costs mm-hmm. are going to be insane, and it's going to—it's potentially going to kill some of those smaller races that that people regularly attend. Well, I, I think what it does is it forces the individual organizer to think about the context in which their event takes place. If we're talking about open road racing, then absolutely there is uh, there is an impact. Uh, we have races in the state, uh, the Tour of Walla Walla, for example, yeah. where we have you know 14 races out on the road at a time, or so it seems. And that event is you have to look at the cost of insuring each individual car and talk about, hey, maybe we adjust the schedule so that the same car can be used two or three times for that insurance cost rather than having three times as many cars each having to get that insurance. In fact, that's been an an issue at that race with official speeds is that it's not an efficient schedule. It never has been. And we we have been proposing as officials a different way of organizing that race that would cut their officiating cost by about two-thirds, but they haven't wanted to do that because they want a lot of different fields out on the road. So there are going to be choices about uh, to be made in these events about you know what goes on the road and when and how far. It also means that in the short term you got to look at a course and say hey this is such a state highway and is this where we want to race? 
<laughs> because that's where you know the requirements coming from. That's a factor. Um, it's also going to probably drive a lot of racing to courses that are more easily managed that can be closed, not just criteriums, but circuit races and the like. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That will give the organizer a little more flexibility and freedom to put together a program with the kinds of divisions they want to have. For the rider, uh, there's going to be some reality therapy here. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, I, I can't put it any other way. No, you're right. I, I kind of keep an eye on, on the cost of uh, entering, for example, uh, a fast pitch softball tournament over the course of a weekend, and I see individuals paying $200, $250 to wow. participate in a weekend tournament. And, you know, these are the same people in our sport who are hopping on $12,000 carbon bikes with electric shifting. Yeah. And we're griping about a $30 entry fee. <laughs> it's, it, <laughs> yeah, it's getting more expensive. Absolutely. Uh, but the experience you're getting in terms of it being a competitive event, you know, it, that's what you're going to have to start weighing. Because a, a Grand Fondo is basically a touring ride yeah. with a clock on it. You know, and, and it's a, that's a different beast. So yeah, there, there will be some changes. Um, and I think a lot of the people who are doing the most complaining about it are perhaps the most adept at sharpening a pencil and making the race work. And so they, they understand the impacts. Um, but I think it, it's a good thing for riders to understand that relationship as well and understand, you know, what a great deal things have been. I mean, you want to see a great deal, but it's all drum. Yeah. Because we we control everything. Yeah. And, and we've had insurance issues out there, too, with uh, motorcycles that we use for pacing and, and care and racing. So it, we're not exempt, but the more you can control the risk and manage it, the better we can contain the cost. Is, the, is this happening Globally, I mean, it just seems odd that I, I don't know if, if in, in Europe they're dealing with these type of issues. Are, are we that litigious of a, of a society? Is it who? I mean, I guess I'm asking who's to blame. Yeah. Is it is it fear? Is it money? Is it uh, is it the promoter? <laughs> what what brought this about? It, 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 it's all those things and it's none of those things. It, there's yeah. no question we are the most litigious industrialized society on the planet, and that has a lot to do with it. Um, Part of it, too, is, you know, the, the relationship we have with the general public and the use of public resources, like roads, yeah. uh, that puts, you know, whatever agency is there administering the resource into the position of having to manage it closely and be accountable for that management. And that comes at a cost as well. And indemnifying the citizens of a city is a big deal. And, and it is more of a thing here than it is in Europe, but it's certainly not unknown there. Um, see the reaction last year to riders going through a downed railroad crossing in front of a TGV. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was a reaction to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and riders themselves are starting to step forward, and I think this is a great thing, and start to complain about the conditions under which they race. Uh, crash last year in which Stetna was so badly injured um, involved an uncovered piece of structure along the side of the road that would have been completely addressed under our local guidelines. But because this was Italy and you know, so yeah. on and so on, um, 
it was left uncovered, and he was horribly injured. And we had a, a crash in uh, Qatar last week, uh, the Qatar that, um, again, involved street furniture that was uncovered. And, and riders are starting to demand this as well. So, you know, that, that level of accountability in the sport. And part of the issue is that there, there's only so much that the national body can do. Yeah. The entity that puts on bike racing in this country is the individual organizer. Technically, as an official, I'm a contractor to the race director, not to USA Cycling. They issue me my license. Yeah. But uh, on race day, I'm technically working for that guy. Um, it, it, it's an unusual relationship because we're also there to enforce regulations, perhaps on that race organizer. In fact, far more of what to do at a bike race involves uh, administering rule towards the race director than it is towards the riders. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bike racing is easy. Yeah. By comparison. Well, absolutely. <laughs> no, I agree. And, and, and being on both sides of that equation, having been not only a competitor, but also somebody who's behind and working with the organizers and things like that, truly, as I said earlier, a, a thankless job. You're scaring me, to be honest, about this concept of, of controlled courses and things like that in the future. Being somebody who's been racing since the early 80s, um, oh, yeah. I don't want to be on circuit courses for the remainder no, of my competitive understood. career. And that, understood. That's, that's frightening. Is, is there a solution here what, in terms of are, are we going to be stuck on, on three-mile circuit races and, and doing criteriums yeah. for the remainder of our careers? It's a fair question. Um, because the financial model of this sport is nutty. Yeah. Okay. Um, we, we, we rely on sponsorship to fund these things, but what do we offer the sponsor? particularly in local racing. Nothing. <laughs> crickets. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> absolutely crickets. Uh, and, and so coming up with the revenue to make this work is enormously challenging. It, it's, it is both a revenue and a cost issue, just like anything else in the public sector. Uh, you, you can't talk about reducing costs without talking about taxes. And how are you going to pay for this? Yeah. Um, are we paying too much? Is, can someone else pay for it? Uh, these things have to be addressed. And for an individual race, particularly at the local level or a regional race, um, we have to really think carefully, can one race be all things to all people, or can we accomplish more by putting together more events, maybe with fewer divisions at each race? Um, 
and that's a possibility. I mean, once upon a time, U.S. nationals had all divisions on the same program. Well, that hasn't been the case in anything except cyclocross for decades. Juniors have their own nationals, and masters have their own nationals, and elites have their own nationals. And and the reason's simple. I mean, you, you just can't do everything at the same place. Or you have a three-week event that no one can commit to. Yeah. So locally, we can... It, it would take you know, something that's sometimes hard to achieve locally, cooperation <laughs> <laughs> amongst different organizers to make that kind of a calendar work. But that is part of the answer, is to try to do a little bit less at a given event so that you can take your resources and stretch them further. That's one approach. And the other is you know, to find what has been a, an, un, <laughs> an undiscoverable sugar daddy yeah. to do this. And I, I don't think that's realistic. Uh, so we're going to have a couple of races each year that are really great road events. Uh, you know, Enumclaw. Yeah. And Walla Walla are, are both, you know, terrific events um, just out there on the road. Uh, the races in Olympia looks as though they can be scaled back a little bit. Uh, and that's that's a reasonable reaction, I think, to the realities of the cost. That doesn't mean that they can't come back later and find different courses where they don't have the same impacts. Um, so it, there, there's going to be some adjustments made. Uh, yeah, the days, and I, I remember certainly going back out in the 80s to mm-hmm. Spokane and racing, uh, you know, Medicine Lake or going up to Mount Spokane and whatnot in yeah. the old Inland Empire race. Yeah. Um, you know, the, those kinds of events um, are probably going to be a little bit fewer and further between. Uh, again, we saw with the U.S. Pro Challenge this week. Yeah. You know, even even one race, you know, if you don't have a solid financial backing behind it, it's it just gets incredibly complicated and difficult. And I think they'll be back, but it's it's going to come back in a in a different format. Uh, Utah exists because they have a very solid sponsorship relationship in uh, in Utah. California is going to go through some major changes uh, with ASO, the people who promote the Tour de France. They're coming on board as the major organizing entity of the Tour of California. Wow. And they're going to be bringing resources to the event. And so that one's going to continue in, a, if anything, a, a larger fashion and more uh, ambitious fashion than we've ever seen before. But that's so expensive. I mean, that, that's the sort of thing that locally you, we can't we can't even dream of. No. Well, everyone dreams about it, but no one can do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, it makes me... Uh, I, I'm, I'm finding myself turning into one of these grumpy old men pining for the old days, to be honest. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I understand. Understand. Yeah. It, uh, and it's... <laughs> And we have more of them in the sport now than we ever have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Masters racing is a, a world unto itself. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, organizers would do well to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, it's, you know, the, the expectations of different divisions, different individuals, is such that you can fine-tune an event. And, and they do that in Southern California, uh, sometimes with hilarious results. Yeah. Uh, it's... Masters racing down there is a completely different and unique and 
totally befuddling culture to me. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of people there who are in their 50s who really do view this as the world championships. Yeah. You know, over the years, I've been assigned by USAC to do disciplinary investigations or chair committees, and I cannot tell you how many of them have come out of Masters Racing. Good God. <laughs> you know, we've got type A individuals with resources and yeah. conflict. Well, yeah, it's it's remarkable well i've always i've talked about that many times on this show i'm sure the listeners have been tired of me saying that the sports main demographic more or less consists of wealthy middle-aged white men um and Darn right and and we gotta I resemble that comment yeah so do i but we got to talk about sustainability where is this sport going i mean a junior development is I, I you were involved in one of the discussions where i threw out on facebook saying mm-hmm. hey what kind of a question yeah. do you have about the sport and junior development constantly mm-hmm. comes up um and sustainability is a huge issue here we got concepts of of courses being reduced and field size being reduced and now we've got concepts of of the sport being outpriced um and our demographic is is all older men and and the sport's growing old in this country and i don't see a lot of youth and (laughs) that type of stuff coming into it there are some bright lights out there i mean and I tend to look at the track a lot for that because the track is a great place to contain cost. Track bikes haven't changed that much over the years, yeah. except at the very high end. And, you know, the what was in the MVA, Merrimore Velodrome Association, uh, Jerry Baker Memorial Velodrome Association, yeah. years ago had Bill Davidson build custom steel bikes specifically for use by kids on that track. And that program has grown and grown and grown over the years. And from a parent's perspective, it's fantastic because yeah. the kids don't go anywhere. They just go in circles. <laughs> and so they're, they're, they're well monitored. Uh, you're not dealing with traffic and kids love it. And so those programs have grown very nicely. Um, take a look at the women's programming, at least on the West side of the state has been phenomenally effective in developing divisions that were kind of on death's door 10 years ago. And they've grown to, we have separate women's four fields, women's three fields. People get upset if the fours and the threes are combined anymore. <laughs> um, and then so there has been growth. But what it took were the people who were in these divisions to dedicate their time, resources, talents, treasures, and so on to educational programs, to the development of clubs and equipment banks and sponsorship for that purpose. And, you know, Team Group Health in particular has been honored by USA Cycling as a team of the year a couple of times. Rad Racing with juniors, same thing. We we just need more of that. Um, And with those divisions, particularly with kids, we're not necessarily going to be talking about open road racing. I hope not. That's one of those places where you can work circuit races and auto tracks and so on and do really well. I mean, I was fortunate I had one of my kids come up through cycling and uh, they had a grand time doing so. Uh, And, you know, I'm I'm as nervous a parent as anyone else. Um, (laughs) But I, I was confident, maybe because I was officiating some of those events, that they were going to be managed and that the risks were going to be dealt with. Not that he was exempt from it. He got cut up a couple of times. But on the whole, uh, the sport can structure itself for the needs of these individual divisions, and you will see growth. Um, 
whether or not those goals align with the goals of people who are currently promoting events, that's a different question because juniors don't tend to generate huge numbers yet. Yeah. At least, you know, to justify half the day there. Rad racing has done a good job of putting an event together down near Alma. Absolutely. I've uh, been to that a one. stage race for juniors and yeah. it's been a great event, a terrific event. Uh, and, and I think we're going to see more of that and, Northern Cal has been doing this. Uh, Colorado's been doing this for decades and spectacularly so. So there's nothing to say it can't happen. One of my theories here is that once upon a time in the sport, when people got too old or too slow to race, they became coaches, club officials, referees. Today they become masters. (laughs) And, And so we've lost a lot of the the human capital that it takes to keep these programs going or to get them started. And that's one of the real challenges I think we have at the grassroots level in racing is we we keep relying on someone else to do the work. Yeah. There's got to be some organizer who's going to put this together for us and we'll just pay our entry fee and everything will be sweet. But I don't think the world works that way, particularly if you've got to develop, uh, reserves of equipment and you know both to put on a race and to equip riders who may not have you know 10 15,000 yeah. laying around for a bike and wheels and rollers and everything else so that's that's one of the challenges is to keep people who are in the sport clued into the fact that we are small enough as a sport we rely on each other to keep the ball rolling I, to develop volunteers. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I hear a lot of these people who are the complainers, you know, that especially how you talk about the mat, they don't become involved in the, in the organization of the sport. They become masters. A lot of these type of people are the people who are saying, Hey, there are sports crumbling. There's no junior development yet. They have probably 12 bikes in their house that they don't ride anymore and, and could easily yeah, yeah, yeah. go, Hey kid here, take this one, you know, <laughs> exactly. and you don't exactly. see that. Anymore. I'm, I'm and, just and, as guilty. And, yeah. And, and right now let's, let's be honest. Masters racing is the meal ticket. Yeah. For everyone from the national organization right down to the local promoter. Uh, and, and that, that beast has to be fed. And, and so there, there is this sort of, uh, I guess, ethical issue in my mind, because to me, cycling is a religion. <laughs> and we have to tithe to keep that religion functioning. And, and we tithe in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's effort. Um, but prayer alone ain't going to do anything. I mean, we, <laughs> you've got to put some effort into it. And that's, uh, that's a challenge for our state organization and for our clubs. Um, you know, one of the things that we've lost over the years is the whole concept of a cycling club. Yeah. We have teams now. There aren't many clubs. You're right. Yeah. And it, 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 it's a subtle thing. The clubs are open to anyone and it's there to promote the sport and participation. Whereas teams are all about winning. Wow. Okay. I, I, Nothing yeah. wrong with that, but it is a different approach to the activity. And I want to see more clubs. Um, so it, it, it's, it's more than coming up with the types of events that draw casual participation. I mean, mountain biking was supposed to be that. Yeah. 
and then it evolved into a professional activity and the whole dynamic of what that was about changed and then mountain biking nearly died. Now it's making a comeback. Yeah. But now we're looking at gravel grinders and fondos and fat bikers, fat bike nationals. I, I'm still wrapping my head around that. <laughs> uh, cyclocross is phenomenal. And I, I've been heavily involved as an official with cyclocross simply because there's been so much growth. Yeah. And why? You control the circuit. The effort is limited to a certain time period. And so you can have a lot of people participate in a day. And it's a great, fun thing to do. And there's a community around it. And people are really drawn to that. And so it's, it's a glorious thing. The only thing that holds us back at the national level is that it's not an Olympic event. And so yeah. the resources from U.S. Olympic Committee don't flow into cyclocross. So we end up having bake sales to send our riders to worlds. Um, <laughs> it, it, not, not a good thing. No. And, and unfortunately track has gone the same way. Uh, so there are some challenges at that level as well, but the sport can grow. I think there are entities out there, whether they be clubs or organizers or what have you, that are willing to do what it takes. Uh, interscholastic racing is a great example yeah. here in Washington where we have an active program and I think it works towards all the right motivations to, to keep things moving. It's just now getting participants in the sport to buy into this vision and understand that it's not going to be done for them. We all have to do this together yeah. if, if we're going to make progress and we can't rely on Colorado Springs or anyone else to do that for us it's it's on our shoulders yeah i see a, a lot of uh and in, in in terms of the events i'll announce throughout my my season i i will see a lot of especially huge growth in the sport of triathlon and and cycling doesn't have what triathlon has triathlon as you say has a lot of clubs has a lot of people competing just for the joy of competing it is its structure <laughs> within itself allows for participants to compete without necessarily in in cycling you get dropped the race is over uh you're not racing within yeah. yourself unless you're in a cyclocross <laughs> yeah. race or something yeah. like that you're racing against yourself um i yeah. i i i'm not sure where i see the sport going in terms of that because there's that learning curve there's that competitive nature yeah. that once you're dropped it's over um and there's a mm -hmm. lot of stuff in there and i you know that's where i guess i see the growth in fondos i see the growth in in these gravel yeah. type of racing yeah. where it's you against the course and it's it's hard for a sport to sure. continue sustainability there well I, I think it's perfectly healthy to see the growth in fondos and those types of events i when i started it was time trialing yeah you know, that was sort of where you got involved in the sport and it was a great way to get involved and get through this ridiculous learning curve that our sport has. Oh, insane, yeah. Um, there's nothing like it except trying to throw maybe a curveball or something. <laughs> uh, it's incredibly difficult. And and so, yeah, I, it, it could be just a horribly uh, discouraging process for a new, uh, a new rider. And triathlon, amongst its virtues, um, <laughs> does offer the fact that you are you know, competing in essence against yourself. Uh, I think there is this focus on self in triathlon that I, I sometimes find disturbing. Yeah. But, no, yeah. you know, oh, because, yeah. yeah, cycling does have teams. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, teams and clubs and, and those kinds of dynamics. 
uh, and a sense of community. Um, so, yes, I think should be looking at some of these other events for ideas on how to how to develop that sort of mass of interest and energy to create more events. So in that sense, the diversity of the sport, these new types of events, I think that's healthy. I think that's yeah. great. Um, USA Cycling is starting to address under its new administration the fact that they maybe aren't all things to all people and shouldn't be. Um, and that's a stunning comment that I heard recently from a staffer there and said, yeah, you know, maybe we need to let some of this stuff go to other organizations just so that we can keep our eyes focused on our mission. And, you know, that, (laughs) once I got my jaw off the floor, (laughs) you know, USAC has been traditionally very protective of its turf. Yeah. Um, I said, yeah, you know, that's great because I would like to see USAC spend more time with road racing and track racing and cyclocross um, and, and the things it does and be a little more cooperative and collegial with the people who are doing, for example, um, near Scholastic Mountain Bike. There are signs that USAC is working more with those people rather than treating them as uh, competition. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think that bodes well particularly maybe for a different model for grassroots racing. Uh, that's probably a ways away yet. The amount of change that is going to be occurring at USAC is so much that you just can't do it all at one time without destroying the organization. Um, we've got yeah. the, a, a, new, a new guy at the top at USA Cycling. Yeah. He's bright. I think he gets it. Uh, he's smart enough to know that he can't change everything in three weeks. And so it's going to be a process, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm encouraged by what I see. That's, uh, you know, I, you and I are both involved in a, in a Facebook discussion group de- talking about a USAC restart, quote unquote. Um, yeah. and, and there yeah. are other groups yeah. out there who are the Oregon Bicycle Racing Association creating their own entity mm-hmm. and those types of things. It used to be upon once upon a time, I recall that if you didn't, if you raced in a race outside of USCF, how how much does that date me? Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you were to compete yeah, in one yeah. of those events outside of that governing body, you could be penalized. And and now we're yeah. seeing that shift. Um, how does USAC fit in with these other organizations, these other groups, and and what do they? How do they feel about that? It's a really good question um, because we certainly have seen organizations break away from USA Cycling in the yeah. past, uh, Bicycle Racing Association of Colorado, most notably OBRA, definitely. Uh, uh, NorCal um, was definitely in that ballpark as well. And what it came back to was that at the local level, you had people racing who wanted to have a goal to do something nationally, to see how good they could become. And so USA Cycling always stayed relevant in that sense. At the same time, I I look at other sports, and I'm I'm wondering if USA Cycling maybe doesn't need to rethink its relationship with local racing. For example, in Canada, uh, the CCA, the Cycling Cycling Association of Canada, basically is a decentralized beast. Each individual province issues licenses. They're all wow. different. It drives me crazy at international races. Oh, I but bet. 
that 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 aside, they let the individual regions determine what's best for them, and the national association focuses on national championships, a national team, a national training center, and so on. And there are signs that that's beginning to work. <laughs> they're, they're producing a better national team. They're producing a better product. Um, but you've got a little bit of bandwidth in terms of the quality of what happens from place to place. Most sports in this country have a similar sort of situation. Uh, for example, to, you know, let's take baseball. Uh, there must be 14 national organizations that deal with baseball. And they are administered through hundreds of different local affiliates. And you could be playing Babe Ruth baseball, Little League baseball, yeah. high school, various, you know, various products out there. And the national organizations or organization that picks an Olympic team has a fairly limited scope of work. Um, we may see that here at some point or another where the national governing body produces a rule book. We still there? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, things are beeping on me. Oh, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. Uh, yeah, well, we have a you know, a national rule book. We have officials. You know, we have certain things that maintain continuity, but where the actual administration takes place locally. That would allow the national organization to focus on the things that it's chartered to do. I mean, one of the things USA Cycling has to deal with is that it's chartered to find a national team, find an Olympic yeah. team, and develop that. And that's where a lot of its funding comes from. Well, OBRA doesn't have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, no, that's a cost they don't have to bear. But as a result, the rest of us have to bear it. And so... You get into questions of, hey, you know, <laughs> why, why are we getting stuck with this? Yeah. Um, and so I think part of bringing in the Obras of the world, and mind you, I love Obra. I love what they do. Um, sometimes it drives me crazy. But <laughs> on the whole, given what they say their purpose is, which is to support organizers in racing, they do an incredible job. Um, but at the same time, the writers, after a while, say, hey, you know, we want to participate elsewhere. Now we're buying two licenses. Now we're yeah. doing this. Now we're doing that. And, and so, OBRA has the challenge to be relevant nationally. They've tried. They've, they've certainly tried to market their products nationally and with yeah, sort of yeah. not even moderate success, zero success. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because they've got good people who do great things. Yeah. Uh, the the new group, North American Cycle Sport, is taking a different approach. They're not trying to compete with USA Cycling, but rather providing insurance officials and so on for those events that don't want to be a part of USA Cycling. They're totally grassroots focused, and there are signs that that's that's a going concern. Uh, that they're going to do okay. Um, ultimately, maybe USA Cycling and NACS come back together and restructure the sport so we have a grassroots side of it and an elite side. And that certainly is one alternative vision of what the future could look like. Wow. And I, I think that would be a, 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 a very healthy thing. Um, but we're <laughs> a very long ways away from yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, it's it you know it, it reminds me of the Norba days when it was Norba and USA Cycling or USCF at the time mm-hmm. and two yeah. different entities and oh my man I just you know I guess I guess a lot of people just expect a race to happen and expect it all to be masterfully and you know warm and fuzzy and and not understanding yeah. all the stuff that's going on behind that and why your entry fee is what it is and those types of things. Oh yeah yeah and and when you really get into the the hidden costs of what goes into putting on a bike race. Oh God. Um. Yeah, it's it, and, and I'm I'm going to be the first to say I've been heavily critical of a lot of what USAC became over the last 15 years and where its priorities were. Yeah, uh, and where we as officials, we as local people, organizers, where we fit into that. Um, plus, you know, there's the whole question of you know other values. You know, looking the other way as yeah some really nasty things came down. Um, and that's obviously not speaking in a code that anyone can translate. Ha. No, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Go Lance, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I think there's huge progress being made. Um, there's huge progress being made to kind of right the ship on the ethical front, on the governance front. And that's what it's going to take to then have as an organization, the confidence, if you will, to reach out to OBRA, to NACS, to whomever, and say, okay, let's let's take this you know, small community we've got, and it's still a small community, and be more efficient about how we how we spend money, how we allocate resources, so that we're not competing with ourselves to quite the same degree. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a long process, but I think we we definitely have a very different organization uh, in terms of executives in place. I think more changes are coming, but you just can't do them all at one time. So I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. The proof is what comes down and, uh, you know, certainly in our small and shrinking group of officials, and that's a problem. We're down maybe 25% from where we were a couple wow. of years ago nationally in numbers of officials. Really? That's a problem. It's a problem. Who wants this? Who wants to spend their weekends doing this? Well, and, and I, mean, be, I, I can make that kind of money at McDonald's. Yeah, and being the bad cop, too. It's, it's, you find yourself having to deal with those sometimes yeah. those negative issues. I mean, my God, you're, you were just saying you had to look for motors and bikes recently. I mean, yeah. the fact that you've got I, to I sort do of prefer that. The phrase, I prefer the phrase designated grown-up to bad cop. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, there, there is that. And, and, and there are times we have to say no, and sometimes you have to say it repeatedly to the point where people get aggravated. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's that, that's part of the art and the science of being an official, I suppose. Oh, um, but it, 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 it's going to be incumbent upon all the different... And, and Derek said this, Derek Bouchard-Hall, the CEO yeah. of USA Cycling, said his first re- revelation when he came on the job is how many tribes there are. Yeah. Bob Stapleton, who's the chairman of the board, said the same thing. There are so many tribes with insular interests in the sport, but it's hard to find the common ground sometimes. And that, that's a huge challenge for any national governing body, but particularly for this one, as the sport has grown and diversified. Uh, that's part of what they're trying to sort out right now, along with the financials of the last 15 years. Yeah. Um, 
and I'm sure there's been a couple of oh my god moments uh, at Colorado Springs as Derek has sort of learned how the sport's been administered. <laughs> but uh, as he gets more confidence and gets the organization structured to be more efficient, more business-like, I think you're going to see more outreach to these different tribes. I think that's the theme that leadership there established last year when they took over. And believe me, they took over. Yeah. Um, the previous uh, President Johnson was forced out. Oh, yeah. And um, it, it, I think they had reached the point where they said, enough's enough. Yeah. We need we need to we need to turn the ship, uh, <laughs> but it's a slow turn. It's a really slow turn. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm for me, if I want to see change, it starts here. It starts locally. Um, the Belladrum Association has gone through that. They're still going through that. I think there's an awful lot of shaking out going on with cyclocross. We have a lot of independent promotions right now. And all that's good. Anything that gets people on a bike is, in my mind, a good thing. Um, the expectations are going to evolve, and I think uh, we're seeing that now. Even some of the independent promoters are saying, you know, we kind of like it when there's an official here, or we kind of like it when there's some structure here, because then they can focus on the stuff they do, the things that make yeah. the customers happy, and they don't have to worry about being the designated grown-up. So that's, that's one of the services officials provide. So I, I think if we do this locally, we are well-positioned, or better positioned at least, to respond when USA Cycling says, okay, we want to delegate more authority to our local associations. Or when the local associations say to USA Cycling, yeah. we need to take this on for ourselves. Um, wow. In this state... You know, the, the WSBA, while it has a contractual relationship with USA Cycling, it has responsibilities and accountabilities that have nothing to do with USA Cycling. They're the, they're the entity that's accountable for the bike racing guidelines, for the actual safe administration of the sport on public roads. Not USA Cycling, not OBRA, not NACS. The WSBA has oh. that responsibility. And so, you know, it has to be all things to all people. And we're going to see local associations that are responding to whomever is organizing the race, whether it's USAC or NACS or OBRA or an independent. Okay. And, and it has to be able to be nimble enough to, to provide one one point of contact to agencies who really don't care whether or not cycling lives or dies. Yeah. That's, that scares me, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, oh yeah. God. No, no, yeah. no, no question about it. So uh, it, 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 it is scary. So my, my dad always told me two things uh, and I'm going to ask you the first one and then I'll state the second one. The first one is um, if you ever want to stop, bike riding uh open a bike shop and i can imagine that right. uh to st uh, the other one would be be a full-time official uh do you ever do you get to get out there anymore <laughs> or is it just all a matter of like do oh, I still God. Ride? oh yeah. yeah i do i do right on i yeah i i yeah i, I try to ride when i can right. i i mean i had to have a knee replaced a couple of years ago oh, after an automobile collision so that's 
I actually walk more than I drive anymore. I'm just checking the mileage on my car and checking the mileage on my Fitbit, and <laughs> I've walked more than I've driven in the last six months. But uh, no, no, I, I still like riding. I still love riding, and so I do get to do that. I, you know, I, I certainly get about the bike shop. I mean, uh, the other thing I've heard is uh, <laughs> it's a great way to make a small fortune out of a large one. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's, 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 it's the same thing. So I do get out to ride, right and um, I, I I do sort of remember what's fun about it. I I kind of I, I've been known to go down to the villadrum and ride when I know no one else is out there, <laughs> simply, simply because I just don't want to embarrass anyone. Yeah, um, yeah, I, it's, it's just that simple. Well, the, the, no one can handle being taken out by a fifty-seven-year-old official. <laughs> so. The other thing he also told me, my dad also told me, was after every race and after every opportunity to uh, make sure you thank the people that make the race happen, and those are include our officials. Yeah. So um, I'm going to say it now, in case I didn't say it to you in those days when I was really racing. Um, thanks for all that you yeah, guys you do. You guys have a shit job, and and I I as being a, a, an official for a short amount of time. I hope people understand all the all the stuff you guys have to do. I, th- I think it's a great job. And for someone who used to race, and for as many years as I did, to be able to go right into you know the follow car and be right in the midst of the game, whether it's at a local race in Elma or at the Volta Catalunya or at the World Championships, I get the best seat in the house. <laughs> and I know, and, and I know people care. You know, that's the thing, yeah. is people care passionately. Sometimes they have a funny way of saying it, but it <laughs> is, it, it's obvious that there is a strong, vital community of people. It's now just a matter of keeping that community organized and motivated to look at something beyond themselves. And if we could do that, then this sport has a great future in Washington State, in the Northwest, and across the country. And we'll be able to take the slings and arrows, whatever's coming out of Europe, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And 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 not just Europe, but you know, obviously a lot of the uh, problems in the sport had been developed domestically. Yeah. Um, we'll be able to deal with that, but we we got to re- always remember why we like the sport to begin with, and do what we can. And that's that's a challenge for officials too. I mean, let's let's be honest. Uh, sometimes officials get carried away with their own uh, set of responsibilities and yeah. accountabilities and could be less than pleasant. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I totally get that. And so we're all in this together. And one of the things I've appreciated about, uh, you know, some of the websites and the discussions that are out there is the opportunity to get these ideas on the table and understand, you know, what, what motivates folks who do that. We'll be fine. Okay. You, I, I feel a little better better now. I just I don't know if this okay, was just good. a one hour therapy session for me, but um, you know, <laughs> thank you for that. So, <laughs> well, I sometimes need it. I sometimes need it myself. Oh God, yeah. It's just, there there, ha- there have been times. <laughs> it's all over. We're screwed. I got to get Phil on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I have sometimes turned to the heavens and said, "Why me, Lord?" You know, <laughs> it, it, it does happen. Oh God. Um, yeah, why did I get into this sport? Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. I could just go to movies or something. Yeah, I've, I've been told do this as well. Yeah, I've been told golf is a wonderful activity. I just can't find a, the reason to do it. So, no, yeah. no, yeah, it doesn't hurt enough. No, no, no. It, it's, it's an amazing uh, taskmaster this sport. But, um, <laughs> 
but it's still enjoyable. I still love to see people go at it out there Good. and really give it themselves and, and understanding that it is such a, a difficult sport to master. It gives me a greater appreciation every day, every time I work a race. Yeah. Right? Last year I worked 200 days out of the year oh, at a bike race somewhere. Oh, I mean, a lot of them were down the street at the velodrome, but 200 out of 365. Oh, okay. So there, there's certainly there's stuff going on. <laughs> you know, you you know, man. The, the sport is alive. Yeah. Um, it's challenged, but it's alive. Oh. And you, for all of the you know, problems people are having kind of on the day-to-day nuts and bolts, dollars and cents side, uh, there's no lack of interest from people in cycling. And I think that's going to be the case for some time to come. Good. Well, first of all, well, thanks, thanks for what you do, man, and, and, and thanks for your time very much. Oh, happy to do it. Happy to do it. Right. Anytime. All right, let he without sin cast the first stone. It is not easy to be an official. I think cycling is at a crossroads. When it, and It's probably always at a crossroads, but um, I don't know. You guys, with this insurance thing and our lit- litigious society, I think Phil's got some great points there. And if we want to make a change, maybe one of us should step up instead of complaining about it. So there you go. There's my 10 cents or two cents or whatever the hell that that old cliche is. You guys, uh, thanks for your comments on the show. Keep them coming. Email Patrick at Backfiller.com, Facebook, the Twitter, and all those other social media stupidity things that I constantly abuse. We will catch you next time on the Backfiller Podcast. 